When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to The Athletic Baseball Show, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper in for Tim McMaster on this Monday. As always, we're here with Ken Rosenthal. we got lots of great questions lined up. Coming off of a great weekend of baseball, we had the Yankees and Mets on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks at Citi Field. Tons of emotions in that game. Uh, Blue Jays offensive eruption and a combined no-hitter from the Brewers, too. So lots of great stuff happening on the field to dig into this week. Ken, you were on the scene at City Field for Yankees-Mets. Uh, it seemed even from thousands of miles away, the energy in the ballpark was just different on Saturday night. That's a great way to put it, Derek, honestly. And I said this on the broadcast, and I firmly believe it. I was at the Piazza game in 2001, September 21st, 10 days after the attacks when the Mets played the first game back in New York, and I was at the World Series game the Yankees played in Yankee Stadium that year. Those crazy comeback wins in extra innings against the Diamondbacks, games four and five. And the emotion last night in the park was like that. And it's the first time I've felt it like that since those times. Now, I'm not taking anything away from anything that followed. Okay, I've covered some great games for Fox in the World Series, amazing things we've seen. Red Sox, Cubs winning, all of these things have happened in the 20 years since. But last night, what we had was just a different kind of situation. And we're taping this on Sunday, that's why I refer to it as last night. But when you have the emotion of the attacks, the USA chants, the Mets and Yankees fans kind of going at it, the whole thing was just different. And the way I put it was, it was a celebration of life, of resiliency, of the city's amazing spirit. And it was honestly an honor to be at it. And we've had two big national broadcasts this regular season. The other one was the Field of Dreams game. That was emotional for an entirely different reason, of course, just because of our love for baseball. But last night, it really was special. And as in the Field of Dreams game, it lived up to the moment. The game was amazing and, and complete with almost getting a Piazza home run 20 years later from Pete Alonso. It died at the warning track, but man, it was some game. And there are nights at the ballpark that are very special that are completely unexpected, right? Things that come out of nowhere. We'll be discussing a couple in a moment. And then there are nights that you think might be really good and turn out to be even better. And last night was one of those nights. Yeah, and it's really more of a, a footnote that the win for the Yankees snapped a seven-game losing streak. They have been going through an absolutely turbulent stretch. They've now got the Red Sox 
and the Blue Jays to deal with as they're trying to secure a wild card position in the AL. And meanwhile, the Blue Jays playing a doubleheader with the Orioles scored 11 runs, all 11 runs of their game in the top of the seventh inning against the Orioles. And I keep looking at this playoff race, Ken. If a few weeks ago, it looked like things were going to be pretty stale by the time we got to the second half of September. And it looked like one of those years where people who want expanded playoffs could say, see, this is why we need more teams to get in because the field's too small. And we had two or three weeks of baseball at the end of the season where everything was pretty much decided except for maybe home field, right? But the Blue Jays are shaping up to be a great late season story. And they look like one of the most dangerous teams that could get in to that wild card game and possibly make a really deep run into October. Derek, you're absolutely right. They've got two things that you really have to like. One, obviously, is their offense. And this barrage continued Sunday afternoon, of course, <laughs> with what they did to Baltimore in that game. And there was a record set. The 27 runs in a four-inning span <laughs> were the most in the live ball era starting in 1920. That's kind of mind-boggling. The other thing to like about them is their rotation right now. And with Ryu and Barrios and Manoa and Mats and Robbie Ray, of course, the Cy Young candidate, that's a pretty good five. Now, the bullpen is a question going to remain a question, but I often marvel at the sport's beautiful symmetry, how 60 feet, 6 inches is the perfect distance. I know it's under experimentation in the minor leagues, but it's the perfect distance from the mound to home plate. 90 feet between the bases, amazing, and 162 games is amazing too. And in the 162 game grind, we eventually get the answers, right? We find out who really can survive this survival of the fittest. And this year especially, it's like that coming off the 60 game season last year. So the Blue Jays are a heck of a story. And Vlad Guerrero Jr., with what he's doing, I'm writing a column right now about Vlad and what might happen the final two weeks. It's not so much about Vlad. It's about the awards races and the pennant races. Vlad Guerrero Jr. could win the Triple Crown. He could win the Slash Line Triple Crown. And he might not even be close to the MVP award balloting. So <laughs> that's amazing because that, of course, speaks to Otani and what he's done. And we can have this conversation perhaps next week. But... The Blue Jays are a great story, and their offense is a lot of fun. They're a fun team to watch, too. They've got a ton of energy. And from Lourdes Gurriel Jr. to Teoscar Hernandez to Vlad to Semyon to Springer, it goes on and on and on. And I know I'm missing Bo Bichette there, too. So, fun team. We'll see what goes down the last two weeks because there are a lot of things in play here. Now, the Yankees, as you mentioned, they win 13 straight. They then go 2-11. and that Saturday night game, the one last night that I mentioned that we talked about, Derek, they had to have that. It was pretty much as simple as that. But they still have pitching questions, huge pitching questions. So with the Red Sox having their COVID issues, it seems like they've got a positive test a day. All of these different things in play, it's going to be a fascinating finish. And I'm, of course, forgetting Oakland and Seattle. And I shouldn't be because they're right in this thing, too. Yeah, all it takes is one great week, and suddenly those playoff odds go from 10% or less to 40-plus percent. I mean, we've That's seen correct. that with the Jays is a great example of that. Yeah, I think a lot with the Yankees will ride on the health of Garrett Cole. He, of course, is dealing with a hamstring injury. It looks like there's a good chance he's back for that start on Tuesday, not confirmed yet. And then Jamison Tyon went on the IL, too, so it really forces them to rely a lot more 
on their young pitching. Luis Heal probably going to get a few more opportunities here down the stretch just by need because of those injuries. Uh, but the Jays' offense, first in home runs, second in WRC+, and second in team strikeout rate. I think that's part of what makes them so dangerous. We see a lot of teams that can crush home runs, get to the playoffs, but they strike out too much, and elite bullpens, elite pitching can shut them down. I don't think the Jays' offense is built quite like that. I think they're built more like a typical Houston Astros offense, and that's what makes them so scary. Uh, But as I mentioned up top, a lot happening in baseball this weekend. How about a combined no-hitter for the Brewers? Corbin Burns doing the heavy lifting through eight. Josh Hader finishing it off in the ninth. Only the second no-hitter in Brewers franchise history. I think this is really fun, Ken, because Corbin Burns has emerged as probably the favorite for the NL Cy Young Award, an award that seemed like it was spoken for prior to Jacob DeGrom's arm injury earlier this season. Well, that's going to be an interesting question too, Derek, and that's going to be part of my column as well because Walker Buehler has something like 34 more innings pitched than Burns. Now, I'm a volume guy when it comes to the Cy Young. I believe, of course, if you pitch and pitch and pitch gradually, your stats might go down a little bit because you pitch more, and it's the greater performance because you've done it in that span. Now, what Burns has done is historic. And I was looking it up last night. The slugging percentage that he has allowed is the third lowest since 2000. And that was Pedro's great year. So that speaks to what he has done. And there's no denying it. It's amazing. And it's going to be a great race. Scherzer's in this mix too. But I'm not sure which way I lean right now. Because the innings thing, to me, it is important. That volume does matter. Now, the award is for best pitcher. It's not for most innings, highest war. It's best pitcher. A reliever can win this award, right? So why not Burns? There's no reason why not. And the one thing I do not want to hear on Twitter or in my comments section anymore, you can just stop with this stuff about, oh, you guys only like the coastal players. Hello, Christian Yelich, MVP 2018. It's not even like ancient history. It's three years ago. (laughs) So we will vote for the best person. And just so people know, the way the voting works, it's two writers from each city. So really there is a built-in protection against any coastal bias. And we'll see what happens in the voting. And most of the writers who look at this, the men and women who vote, look at all of the statistics that we generally talk about with these things, right? And they go really deep into it. And it's going to be a really interesting question here because of the innings disparity. So one question for you, if someone who's done this for a long time, do you feel like the awards are increasingly over time given to the rightful winner? Like, do you see it as a thing where, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, there were the occasional toss ups that the voters might have got wrong? Do you feel like the accuracy has improved over time, even though no one will ever say it's perfect? They get it right every time. But do you think the group is just getting smarter and getting better at at wrestling with these cases i do derek and that's a good question because we have missed in the past and there are some really egregious ones based on the way we look at the game today now we look at the game today differently than we have in the past just you could take wins as one great example right but that's healthy i think we've learned a lot and people in the sabermetric movement have taught us a lot about hey what really is valuable and what really isn't. Now, often there are the arguments about MVP, and I get it, but to me, I'd much rather have an MVP than a Best Player Award. This is much more fun. 
because it leads to debate, and this is a talking sport. We love to talk about this sport. So, yes, I think we've gotten better. It's never going to be perfect. People are always going to have their subjective opinions. There's subjectivity in all of these categories. I remember a few years ago, I preferred Verlander to Snell in the AL Cy Young because of the issue I just mentioned, this innings disparity that existed between the two pitchers. But Snell won the award. Couldn't argue because he was great. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, these are the kinds of baseball discussions that, to me, are just so much fun. Yeah, because we're still arguing over magnitudes of greatness, and that's, that's always a fun thing to do. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's get to our mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. Two ways to reach the show if you want to get in for a future week, by the way. You can call us, 646-543-7072, or you can email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. First question this week involves the upcoming CBA negotiations. Kyle wants to know, if the Universal DH is implemented next season, Ken, is there really a point in having the AL and the NL split up? Could we potentially see a restructuring of both leagues to make an east-west split to make travel less taxing on the players? Kyle, you raise a really good point. And the first part of your question is, hey, why would we have separate leagues if we're playing now by one set of rules? And that is entirely reasonable to ask. But this is not a one-step process. And what I mean by that. Baseball wants to realign. They want to get to maybe a more geographically based schedule, as you mentioned, and divisions cut along those lines. It's not going to happen, or it probably won't happen, until we get to 32 teams. We're at 30 right now, and the math, the scheduling, everything works better with 32. So then your next question is, well, why aren't we at 32? Why not? Let's go. We've got cities that want teams. Las Vegas, Portland, Charlotte. I can name many cities that would want teams. Well, baseball's position has been, rightly or wrongly, they want to resolve the Oakland and Tampa Bay stadium situations before they move forward with expansion. Now, the Oakland and Tampa Bay stadium situations don't resolve or have not resolved very quickly. And this drags the process along. But once there is a new CBA, and once there is some clarity in both those situations, and I think we're getting closer to clarity, not necessarily what Oakland fans might want if that team ends up in Vegas, and who knows what Tampa Bay fans will think about the split with Montreal. Okay, but we're getting closer, it seems to me. Once they have that, once they have a CBA in place, then you expand, you go to 32, you break it into eight 14 divisions, and you have the ability to do just what, Kyle, you suggested. Yeah, so this sounds like a thing that actually would be pretty easy to agree upon once you get to those 32 teams. This seems like something the players and owners actually both want, does it not? I don't even know that the players have thought about it that seriously. This is not something that's on their 
immediate concern list, but they're, they'd certainly want 32 teams. That's mm-hmm. 52 new jobs for starters. So yes, they'd be in favor of that. And as far as the geographic realignment, I can't imagine why they wouldn't be in favor of it. It's just not a topic that is pressing right now compared to all the other things that are going into the CBA stew. Thanks a lot for that question, Kyle. Our next question comes from Sean. Sean wants to know, does a team's defense affect how the opposing team approaches is its bats? For example, against an all-gold glove team, would it make sense to employ more of a three-true-outcomes approach because your expected batting average on balls in play would likely be low against that great defense? And conversely, against a bad defensive team, would it make sense to try and put the ball in play more often to see what happens? Sean, it's not that easy. (laughs) And certainly, if you had a team of gold glove type defenders, which you rarely do, there's not teams that you can look at and say, wow, this is a all gold glove team. You have maybe a couple of guys like that. But even if you have the other way, where it's a team of poor defenders, actually we see this maybe more often, it's really difficult to hit the ball in the first place. As we know, it's the hardest thing to do in sports. And guiding the ball is a difficult thing to do as well. And we've seen that. It's a matter of approach. Oftentimes, yes, you can approach it in a way that Beats the shift, and perhaps hitters should concentrate more on that. We saw a two-run bunt single from Odubel Herrera Saturday night in the Phillies game that certainly was a, a good indication of how the game can be played if you're willing to do things along those lines. But for the most part, hitters do not think like that. They think about hitting the ball hard, and maybe they think about hitting the ball in the air. Increasingly, they do, and maybe to some degree – an up-the-middle or opposite-field approach at certain times, maybe in certain situations, a pull approach. But I don't know that you can take the defense into account and not lose your mind at the plate because the first thing you have to do is make contact, and that is increasingly in our game, although it's been a little bit less this year because the strikeout rate finally is stabilizing, but it's just hard to make contact. Yeah, I would say broadly, we are in an era of baseball where it's probably as hard to get a hit as it's ever been at any point in the game's history. So trying to guide the ball is extremely difficult. Now, Les has a long-term question that's related to this. He writes, put on your forecasting hat in five years. Do you still see the frequency of shifts we see now? Or will have batters adjusted and forced a more traditional defensive alignment? Les, I'm not sure we see the shift at all. And there's been a lot of talk in baseball central offices about banning the shift and how far they want to go with it, whether they actually go through with it remains to be seen. But I would expect in the CBA, and this is a prediction that is just based on some of the things I've heard, that there's going to be some aspect of it that addresses the shift. Now, you might ask, or you will ask, what does that mean? It could mean two fielders on each side of the bag standing on the dirt. It could mean any number of things. But I believe that's coming before what we're waiting for, which is the hitters adjusting and taking the shift away kind of in an organic way. We've been waiting for that. And that's not happening, partly because of what Derek just said, how it's never been more difficult to get a hit in Major League Baseball. So it seems to me, from what I understand, baseball officials believe the hitters are not going to adjust. Maybe they can't adjust. And maybe the way to address this is to ban the shift or limit the shift in some fashion. Now, the idea, of course, is to spur run production. 
what I have said all along with the shift, if you want to ban it or adjust it, I have no problem with that. Sports do things to address their defenses all the time. The NBA has, the NFL has, baseball can do it too. It's okay. But it can only be one part of the equation. There have to be other things done as well to increase offense. The rules on the sticky stuff or the even better, getting a tackier ball would help as well. And these things all in combination, then you can maybe talk about or hopefully get more offense. But it can't be a one fix panacea. It's not going to work that way. It's not going to happen. And you're going to have unexpected consequences, unintended consequences, I should say. That's always the case whenever the sport innovates, but I am for trying to spur offense along a little bit more. I think one thing I always hope, Ken, is that when they make adjustments to the game, that they make them individually, so that way you can get a better idea of what each adjustment is actually doing. Like You're, you're kind of fine-tuning a dial, right? You want to add more offense, change one thing at a time, but if you add two or three new variables simultaneously, it's hard to even know how much each of those things impacted that final change. No, that's a great point, Derek, and a very fair one. And it's actually contrary to what I'm suggesting. But what I'm saying is I don't think you can simply ban the shift and snap your fingers and think offense is going to be better. So if you're going to actually try to do something, you maybe address a number of things. The strike zone could be another aspect of this. And will we be able to quantify it the way we'd like to because the variables won't all be independent of each other? No. But if you get to the desired place, that ultimately is the goal. Next question for this week comes from Alexander. He writes, hi there. Definitely wanted to say thank you so much for all the great work you do and the excellent shows that you put out this year. My question is about the Mickey Mantle Joe Pepitone bat that the Hall of Fame is engaged in dispute over. Basically, what is the deal with this situation and what is the importance? Does it look like Pepitone has a case or is the Hall going to win the argument? I've read a couple of pieces about the situation, but it'd be great to hear your thoughts, Ken. Thanks again for all you do. All the best, Alexander. Alexander, thank you, and I must admit, I should be honest about this anyway. Derek and Tim, when he's doing the show, they give me the questions in advance. So I'm not exactly shocked, but this one I had to do some research on, as I often do, actually, with a number of the questions, but this one I was not even that aware of. And actually, the story broke in The Athletic, Derek, which is good for us, and (laughs) it's an interesting story because, as Dan Kaplan wrote, Joe Pepitone is suing the Hall for a million dollars plus ownership of the ball Mickey Mantle used to hit his 500th home run. The dispute comes because Mantle used Pepitone's bat. Pepitone had hit a couple of home runs in that game, gave the bat to Mantle and said, I think there's another one in here. Mantle uses the bat. Pepitone then allows the Yankees to give it to the Hall of Fame. He says, with the understanding that it's simply on loan, that he can get it back anytime he wants. He says the Hall confirmed that many times over the years. But when he asked for the bat to be returned on September 1st, 2020, the Hall said no. The Hall says the bat was donated in 1967, and that's that. So I'm not a legal expert, but it would seem to me that for Joe Pepitone to win this case, he'd have to have some kind of written evidence that this arrangement actually was made. And it doesn't sound like from Dan's report and some subsequent reports that he does have that. So then it becomes a matter of his word against the Hall's word. And I don't know if you can win a case on that basis, but it's one of those fascinating things. Who would have thought that 
Mickey Mantle's 500 home run would result in such controversy. Oh, I don't know, some 65 years later or whatever it is. 55 years later, 54 years later. I did my math wrong. My math stinks. This was 67. This is 2021. It's still a long time. Can you think of any other controversial pieces of equipment that have made it into the Hall of Fame where there was a, a chain of custody sort of dispute like this? Derek, I can't, but I imagine that there has been, right? I mean, these are the kinds of things that permeate our society, right? So I don't know of any. I'm sure listeners out there, maybe they can alert us to others that have taken place, but I don't imagine that this is the first. And usually, of course, when milestone moments occur, there's not much of a fight at all. The hall has representatives there, and a certain amount of the equipment is turned over, and perhaps the player will want to keep one of the keepsakes, but generally players are pretty honored and willing to give up their equipment to the hall, whatever, caps, uh, gloves, whatever the case might be. But in this case, this is a little bit of a different twist. Thanks a lot for that email, Alexander. Definitely a fun, very different sort of story to uh, dig into. And as you said, Ken, nice to see that Dan Kaplan of The Athletic actually had that story uh, originally. Uh, let's get to this next question. This is a great email from Mike and Jerry. Uh, they write, love the show. I listen with my dad every Monday while we make dinner together before watching a game. He and I like to play a game where we come up with scenarios and try to rank them from most to least likely. We came up with these five for you. Feel free to rank them or just comment on their likelihood. We can try to rank these, Ken. So I'll, I'll run through the statements and we'll kind of break them down. The Mariners win the World Series by 2025. That seems... Aggressive. Possible. Yeah, possible aggressive. Aggressive. <laughs> aggressive, but possible. We'll dig into Certainly why. Certainly possible, yes. Okay, so let's let's see what the next one. Next one is, neither the Phillies nor the Angels reach their respective championship series while Harper and Trout are on their rosters. Ooh, that's a, that's a dark one for Phillies and Angels fans. <laughs> yes, it is. That's a championship series, not a World Series. Right, just so the ALCS or NLCS. Okay, very good. All right, the next one is one or more of Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, or Pete Rose is inducted into the Hall of Fame in the next 20 years. There's an extra note here. Uh, Mike's dad thinks that Rose might be inducted posthumously. Okay. I mean, one of those three getting in in the next 20 years, it's a long time. Things change a lot over time. I think that, that strikes me as pretty likely. The fourth one is a pitcher wins an MVP award in the next three years. We know that's pretty difficult so that's probably on the more unlikely side and then the fifth one the yankees sign carlos correa this offseason and the bonus is he's booed by their fans in his debut <laughs> okay let's tackle these each of us and i guess i'll start derek to me the most likely one is the phillies or angels reaching an lcs with harper and trout i just think that's going to happen next I would say the pitcher MVP. And I know you don't think it's likely. It's not likely. There's no question about that. But it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Then I guess I would go Mariners World Series by 2025. It's not likely, but it's certainly possible. Obviously, it's hard to ever predict a team can win a World Series, even a great team, because things happen in the playoffs. Things happen in the World Series. It's just really difficult to win one of those. Fans sometimes have a hard time understanding that, but it is. 
Yankees Correa, I'll put that next. I don't see that happening necessarily, but they're going to get a shortstop. Glaber Torres will not be their shortstop next season. I feel really too confident saying that. And finally, the Clemens, Bonds, Rose one. I do think that's the least likely. I don't see Clemens or Bonds getting in, at least on the writer's ballot. We've seen the patterns over the last few years, especially. They've been kind of stagnant. And this is their last year. And once they get to the era committees, the veterans committees of the current era, I don't see it getting any easier for them because those guys, the veterans representing the Hall, and some of them are Hall of Famers, they, I believe, will be tougher on the steroid issue than even the writers are. So I don't see that, and I don't know that Rose is coming off the ineligible list to become eligible for the Hall anytime soon. Remember, people don't realize this. The writers don't control this one. We are not eligible to vote for him. He is not eligible to be voted on in the Veterans Committee situation either. So he can't be in the hall right now. Something would have to change, and I don't even know that it changes posthumously, though it's certainly possible. So I've got that one as the least likely of the five. Go ahead, Derek. I want to hear yours because these are great. These are really things that you don't know what's going to happen, so it's fun to talk about. Yeah, the most likely thing, I think, is both the Phillies and the Angels failing to reach an LCS with Harper and Trout, to me. That's the most likely thing of all of these to happen, and it's so that, that, sad. That they're going to reach them. Oh, you don't think they're going to reach them? I don't think they will. Wow, okay, okay. I mean, it's it's hard to even get to an LCS. The Angels... Yeah, that's true, that's true. They, can, they can't get pitching, no matter what they do. They just never have the pitching. I think they're a good bounce-back team for 2022, I think if they make the right moves in free agency and maybe make a trade or two, they could be a playoff team next year. All you got to do is get to the playoffs to be an LCS team, right? Anyone who's good enough to get there can win a couple series. But uh, something's wrong in Anaheim. I, I, I can't put my finger on what it is. To have star power like that and to not be able to get there, it's really sad. So this is great. My most likely is your least likely. That's awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> Shows you how difficult these are. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the NL is just it's loaded, too, right? I mean, the Dodgers are not going anywhere anytime soon. The Phillies, it's the same kinds of problems as the Angels because they actually have some pitching right now. Mm-hmm. But for one reason or another, this core right now doesn't seem like it's going to get over the top. It looks like one of those teams is going to be just short and just short and just short again. They've already spent a ton of money, and they haven't been able to get there yet. And they don't have young talent coming through. I think that's the big concern I have for both the Phillies and the Angels. You don't have a lot of young players coming up to add to your current core. I think you need that. That's to me why the Mariners winning the World Series by 2025 is slightly more likely. I really like mm-hmm. that core. Mm-hmm. You know, you add Julio Rodriguez and Noel V. Marte and George Kirby to the young group you already have with Kelnick. Uh, you, you know, you, this is a great core that the Mariners put together. Logan Gilbert looks like a good future starter. Growing pain so far this year. So I, that's slightly more likely, even though from a mathematical standpoint, two teams to make the LCS you know, that's more likely to happen than one team winning the World Series, but depends who the teams are. I'll say I'll, I'll say the, the next most likely thing for me would be the Yankees signing Correa. There's so many other shortstops out there. It doesn't have to be him, right? That's that's part of the problem, I think, there. But I'm totally with you. Glaber Torres, Yankee shortstop in twenty twenty two, no chance. Is he even a Yankee in twenty twenty two? That's a good question too. Because he's a classic case of a guy who might need a change of scenery. And I still believe he's going to be a good player and is a good player. He's had a horrible year. And maybe 
They just rely on him in a different position next year, which would be helpful to him, in my opinion. But it would not shock me to see them move him this offseason either. So then the, the next most likely for me would be a pitcher winning the MVP award the next three years. Not impossible, but just it's so hard for a pitcher to do it, even though we're in a pretty great era for pitching right now. And then the last one, I think as you kind of outlined it, Rose is just a non-starter. That's just not going to happen. And because they can't be voted in, Bonds and Clemens, you know, if they don't get voted in this time, it's going to be much harder for them to get in through the Veterans Committee. I, th- I think that's something that maybe I was overlooking upon reading this email. It's a much tougher road for them to get in if they're not elected in. Yeah, I just, I don't see it. And I might as well mention this. I vote for both. I didn't initially vote for both. And the reason I vote for both is because there are other users who are in. Now, we might not know it factually, but once that happened, once I started seeing guys that I thought were users and that are widely believed to have been users, and they make the Hall of Fame, then it's like, all right, we're drawing a line for these guys. Why are we doing that? And not that I believe what Clemens and Bonds did was anything close to cool, because there's plenty of evidence on both, okay? But at the same time, I just don't know where to draw the line. It's a really difficult one. It's one of the things that has driven me a little bit nuts with the hall and the vote the last few years. Because the problem I have here is that there is no right answer, in my opinion. So when I was not voting for them, the flaw in my thinking was, well, X, Y, and Z is in the hall. They all use, and you won't let these two guys in. I thought that was a very valid argument. Now that I vote for them, there are people who can rightly say, this guy is obviously used, we know they did it, and you're voting for them. What is the message you're sending there? Whereas the others, the guys who got in, maybe there wasn't as much proof or evidence, whatever you want to call it. I don't have a good answer for either one. And you can only vote in the end on what you think is the best way to go about it. That's the best way I have kind of devised to go about it but i'm not comfortable with it i don't like it and yet here we are so i just don't see a lot of people changing their mind this year it's not going to be the 10-year sympathy vote for these cats it's not larry walker so that's why i don't see them making it now and i don't see them making it in the future yeah i I wonder how long it will take for the mindset of the veterans committee to change enough to where that becomes more likely if that's the next 40 years Maybe that would be uh, something that would maybe bump that up in terms of how likely I think it is for one of those players to find their way into the hall. I, I think they both deserve to be in there. I know that's a it's opening a huge can of worms and then like running out the door at the end of the podcast. Of <laughs> that's the <laughs> no, best way to do it, right? But, but that but it's it's a very fair point. A lot of people believe that, and I believe it too at this point. But even though the voting base is getting younger. Our voters, the BDWA voters, are getting younger, and they are more forgiving of this, partly because they didn't witness it, right? It's not going to happen quickly enough, and that's going to be the problem they face. And yes, you're right. Once the Veterans Committees turn over and they get some younger people involved, I guess that might change things. But keep in mind, those are baseball people for the most part. And baseball people are harder on this subject or more or less tolerant, I should say, of what has gone on than some of the younger writers, for starters, and even some of the older writers, like myself. 
and I guess I should at least offer a 20-second explanation of why I think they belong in. I think for me, the hardest thing to wrap my head around is that PEDs obviously do something. They make you better. How much better do they make you? Do they turn you into one of the best players of all time if you would have been merely an average player? I don't think they'd work quite that well, right? I mean, I think it comes down to Barry Bonds was probably a Hall of Fame player who took PEDs and then became one of the best players of all time. So instead of being a top 25 player, he's like a top five player statistically, right? Like That's the kind of yes. impact that it had. It, it's just so hard for me to believe that he wouldn't have been there anyway. And it's an unfortunate decision because it... You know, there's other players that we're going to go through this with, too. But you look at those numbers that you, we're never going to see a player like Barry Bonds again. I'd be stunned if I ever see a player do what Barry Bonds did over the course of his career uh, in the next 50 years. I agree with that. And the question is, OK, are you comfortable? And obviously you are and I am, too, with the idea that he went from very good Actually, he went from great to immortal, and then you have players who went from average to good, good to very good, very good to great. This is what the steroids did. We don't know exactly who used them. We don't know to what extent each individual used them. We don't know which pitchers, which hitters. It's a lot of gray. But at the same time, I just don't know the proper approach here, and that is the difficult thing. And I know readers out there and people on Twitter and people listening and people who comment, they have their own opinions, and I think in this particular case, all opinions are valid. I, I don't really have any problem with anything people say about this because it's kind of a personal subject, and it's just we fall on this line. Yeah, a lot of opinions out there, totally with you. And if you've got questions or follow-ups or thoughts on this, of course, there are ways to reach our show. I mentioned them earlier. You can call us, 646-543-7072, or you can email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Thank you for a great batch of questions again this week. Before we go, I just want to say, if you'd like to get 50% off a subscription, get all the great stories that Ken is writing, that our entire team is writing, you can do that at theathletic.com slash baseball show. 50% off is pretty much the best deal that we put out there all year. So if you've been waiting for a good deal, this is the time. Get it now before the playoffs get underway. For Ken Rosenthal, I'm Derek Nreiper. We're back with you on Tuesday. Tuesday.